0: Welcome to Truth Well Spoken, the official podcast for McCann Health and an opportunity to connect across disciplines, companies, and countries in our mutual pursuit of endless truth-seeking. I'm your host today, Victoria Michaels, and today we're here to talk about false advertising in the spirit of April Fool's Day. So I'm here with my colleagues, Dina Rao and Natalie Mercer. Hi, how are you both? Hello. Good morning.
1: I'm Dina Rao. I'm from the copy department. And I like to think that I am no fool, but I think false advertising can get us all. So let's talk about it.
2: <laughs> Hi there. My name's Natalie Mercer. I'm in the strategy group here at McCann Health, New Jersey. And for me, health and wellness is a big part of my life. So I've reaped the benefits of a lot of the different services and tools and methods, but I've also had some struggles as well throughout my process.
0: Looking forward to talking with both of you today. I'm Victoria on the strategy team here at McCann Health, along with Natalie, um, and we're really excited to dive into what we see across the industry, especially in the health and wellness industry, which, you know, is so near and dear to all of our hearts. So we know that Americans are exposed to approximately 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day, which is just unbelievable to think yeah. about you know we're absolutely inundated whether it's subliminally subconsciously we're basically exposed all day long how trustworthy are most of these exposures we get overwhelmed with i think a lot of us can agree that not all of them are right i think there was a statistic that 52 percent of consumers felt that advertisers should be more honest in their advertising. And unfortunately, in the industry, we're in in big pharma and pharmaceutical communications. Big pharma has struggled a bit with trust perceptions as well. The perception of trust is pretty negative compared to other industries. People are pretty critical of pharmaceutical advertising. So, why do you think that is? Where have we gotten in this industry and how do we get here?
1: Mm -hmm. There's probably like a general sentiment among the public, right, that people don't like being sold to. And I think that in marketing, like some of the best ads are when you maybe don't realize that you're being marketed to or marketing almost takes more an entertainment kind of form. So it's more enjoyable. It's more palatable. But I think in general, like people don't maybe enjoy being told that they need to buy something. And I think when it comes to your health and your body, it's even more serious. Maybe there's a tone of Levity when it comes to like sales versus your general well being, you know, like I need to take care of myself. And are you going to sell me something that is truly going to take care of myself or is it going to take care of your wallet? So I think people are distrusting of what motivations are and also like they want to take care of themselves. So, you know, where do you find that balance?
2: I would also add that I think there is still a hangover effect from history when it comes to how the public views big pharma and Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that we have evolved and there's such rigor in place behind the clinical trial process Mm -hmm. and going through all those steps to get an approval i do
1: want to just throw in there also that at at least from the copy perspective right because that's my department i'm writing the words i need to find that balance between marketing the best side of the product and all of its benefits and and why this is worth anyone's time or money while also trying to maintain that transparency, right? We go through a very rigorous medical, legal, regulatory review process. And so it is disheartening, at least as part of the team that works on some of these deliverables, to know that element of distrust is out there because we do make such efforts to strike that balance between transparency and marketing. To the earlier point, the pharma field has evolved, and I think we continue to make strides to do so.
0: Absolutely. And I think we'll dive in a little bit later about how we can regain trust with customers Mm. and a few case studies of how we've seen that come to life. What I've heard, you know, from both of you is number one, health is personal. It's it's a different type of conversation with a customer when you're talking about health. And maybe, you know, consumers are just primed to be more skeptical when they're receiving health messages. You know, no one wants to be sick and no one wants our medicines that we're selling, essentially. You know, no one wants to have to buy those things. The second thing I heard is that there's been some mishaps in the past that have had a really big impact on the industry, on patients and certainly on healthcare providers, especially with the whole Purdue Pharma Oxycontin crisis, which is still Mm -hmm. ongoing, that I think has had a big impact on the industry as a whole. Mm
2: -hmm. And even back in the day when they had physicians who were promoting the benefits of smoking, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they would have these reputable figures in place and that's completely outlandish and (laughs) unethical. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. There's a fine line between, you know, making false claims and not knowing the true science behind something and promoting it to the best of your ability, which, you know, to your point, Natalie, I think we've done a good job at evolving and making sure all those claims are founded. But certainly over the years, those vintage cigarette ads or the cocaine sodas, that definitely Mm -hmm. has made consumers more skeptical and rightly so, right? Yeah
1: that's a great point victoria about that fine line between kind of the false advertising and then at a certain point learning better because Mm -hmm. even during covid when we were learning new things about covid the public sentiment was often oh the information keeps changing or they were wrong they don't know what they're talking about and stuff like that but is it really that we're wrong or is it learning as we go, like finding the best information over time? And I think that there needs to be a certain understanding about li- the difference between lying, knowing better and saying different versus learning better over time.
0: You know, mm,
2: absolutely. I agree.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we see that a lot nowadays with some of these chemicals and products that I think, Natalie, you were going to talk about in a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. I can't wait. I did my homework. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's dive in. The health and wellness industry has been identified as an area that has been a little bit inundated with some false advertising lawsuits and a big amount of skepticism from the general public around their claims to health and wellness. The industry as a whole has exploded in popularity, allure and reach over the past few years, especially in the social media and influencer space. I think for a little bit, we wanna unpack some of these claims that may or may not be unfounded that we've all seen in the industry of health and wellness, which we'll put in air quotes <laughs> for now. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of our own personal experiences. Dina, is there an experience that you've had with a brand that's primed themselves as health and wellness that you're a bit skeptical about?
1: Okay, so I'm excited to talk about this. I will caveat, I have not personally partaken in this brand yet, but it's around me and I'm curious about it. So. For those who don't know, I have recently moved from New Jersey to Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm getting in the habit of saying Nevada, not Nevada. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But when you walk around the casino floors here or or around the hotels, every here and there, you'll see an oxygen bar. And it's these Mm. weird looking like kiosk stands with these bubbling tubes of blue and clear liquids and tubes presumably that go into your nose. One. I was wary because when I first saw it it was still during covid and I was like I'm not trying to stick something else up my nose that's out now in public I'm- And then secondly, I don't know what the heck that was. So I was doing a little bit of research and I don't know if I want to mention a specific brand, just in case I do want to try it out eventually and I become a convert, but they do advertise themselves as a modern wellness bar. And I think that that's really interesting, especially in the environment Mm -hmm. of Las Vegas, you know, bars and nightlife and social life. And it's kind of starting to blend that recreation, that entertainment with healthcare, which I think is very interesting. But beyond that, they claim to with these oxygen sessions. I think it's about like 40 bucks for 20 minutes and you just breathe in the oxygen and they claim that it boosts your energy. It helps you recover from a hangover. It alleviates headaches, migraines, sinus infections, even altitude sickness, promotes sleep and reduce stress. So a ton of information on these oxygen bar websites. But when I went to go try to find a peer-reviewed article, a journal, a paper, mm-hmm. something like that, I could not at least easily, find a clinical study that supported that. And in fact, I found something from, I think it was 2011 that actually concluded with a randomized study of two groups, like head-to-head, that there was no statistical clinical difference. So I am skeptical, albeit curious. Wow.
0: Like a good copywriter, you did your research. (laughs) I did. I had to. I had to come correct. Because they're making
1: these claims, and I know I have to cite my sources. I had to have my reference numbers and my footnotes, and I did not see a single reference on that website.
0: (laughs) Very cool. Thanks, Dina. How about you, Natalie?
2: Well, I'll tell a little bit more of a personal story. But for background, I do pride myself on being a very health-conscious healthy person. I've ran a marathon. I just completed my 200 hours of yoga teacher training, and I'm always interested down for the next type of holistic experience, whether it's a sound bath. So I met a a friend at yoga teacher training who I almost, you know, took her opinion and her experience at face value. She is a, a good friend of mine now, and she lives a very ethical life, plant-based diet, only buys products that are up to a certain level, whether it's cleaning products or the food she purchases. So she had this experience with a float tank. It's called float therapy, if people aren't familiar Mm -hmm. with it. So basically it's an Epsom salt bath and they put a thousand pounds of magnesium sulfate. And I was so excited to try this. I got this for my birthday this year. I've asked for going to a float tank. And the process for that was I had to sign a waiver ahead of time. And they called me on the phone just to confirm my appointment, saying, you know, don't shave your armpits or legs. It might cause some irritation with the salt. Make sure you're full, but you didn't eat too much so you're not bloated. They said, don't drink caffeine before you come so you're not jittery. And I was like, okay, like, I'm I'm ready. I get there, I sign a waiver, and I had to watch this 10-minute video about all the benefits of float therapy. Everything mm-hmm. from relaxation, reducing anxiety, pain relief, better sleep, helping with depression, inflammation. PTSD and chronic pain. I was like, oh, wow, like I was just here for some stress reduction. So I go in, you're put in your separate pod. And I went in and immediately I had the burning, most sensitive sensation by my vaginal skin. And I had no idea this was going to happen to me. My friend didn't warn me. I guess it didn't happen to her. So I immediately hopped out. And was furiously texting all my girlfriends, being like, have you ever done an Epsom salt bath? What was your experience? And one of my friends was like, oh, no, I heard that's bad for you. Upon further research, the natural pH of the vagina is in a range of 3.8 to 4.5, whereas water in these flotation tanks are closer to 7. And I was furious. That there was no warning, no side effect. I had no idea this could happen to me. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like it was extremely unethical. They're promoting all these claims of the benefits of this type of quote-unquote float therapy without warning consumers about the risks that are associated as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a really powerful story just about how all of these kind of health and wellness trends are almost infused in our culture and our social circle and kind of the risks may not ever be disclosed at all, right? Mm -hmm. I also, Natalie, was (laughs) a victim of a float tank. I tried it and I got so much salty water in my eyes and in my nose and in my ears. It was just Absolutely horrendous. So I feel you on that experience. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you, Um, Natalie. What you both brought up is just, I think you both alluded to how infused in the culture you both are in that these products or these experiences are looking to fit into, right, Dina Mm -hmm. in the Las Vegas kind of modern party culture, come and have some oxygen to help recover in a modern and healthful way. And then Mm -hmm. Natalie, in the kind of yoga world, this is another holistic element to get you feeling well and keep your body up to par. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: there's kind of uh, these half steps of health and wellness activities, let's say, that are coming from maybe other areas of culture. Like even when it comes to makeup, there's a movement in makeup lately that's been clean girl makeup, you know, stuff that takes care of your skin in addition to adding makeup aesthetics. And I feel like everything is kind of stemming into a little bit more of self-care because even self-care I think is having a moment, you know, we're in a Mm self-care era and like take care of yourself, self-prioritize, whatnot, especially for women. And then when you kind of infuse that idea into different hobbies or interests, whether it's fit, well, fitness is already kind of there, but, uh, you know, the aesthetics of beauty or the recreation of going out on a night out in Vegas, like when you can just take a half step to infuse self-care into
0: that, it's uh, it's interesting, yeah. Definitely. And I think we see that in the food industry, too. Mm. They've identified what's important to consumers, I think, especially in kids' food. Cereal, juice, Mm -hmm. you know, they know parents want their kids to be smart, to be focused in school, to grow normally. And all of those cereals that have tons of processed sugars and not a lot of whole grains are promoting, you know, your children need to eat these products to stay focused in school, clinically proven to improve attention, Mm -hmm. clinically proven to grow their brains. Those are the things that parents find important. And these traditional advertisers have honed in on that as well.
1: Yeah, especially from a copy perspective, you have those buzzwords that you know mm-hmm. maybe will use in the pharmaceutical space like we have a certain meaning to the term clinically proven, right? Or scientific or evidence, data terms carry weight in our field. When we see them used in the consumer space, I feel like often they're they're kind of co-opting language that is not necessarily valid because they always tend to have that disclaimer you know that little asterisk footnote that I see that says mm-hmm. you know these claims have not been validated or reviewed by the FDA which is significant yet small on the on print
2: I think you know messaging as at risk when you look at the food industry how many labels say organic non-gmo mm-hmm. or sustainably sourced and I think people are starting to catch on to it now but You know, even my boyfriend yesterday, he was having some fruit gummies and he's like, it says made with real fruit. I'm like, "Mm, that's not right. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's almost that, you know, us in advertisers are a bit more trained to be more skeptical. Dina, you mentioned kind of the gold standard clinical trial that Mm -hmm. we use in pharma to validate our claims and talk about our products. Can you speak a little bit about the rigor of what you see on the copy side to get claims approved? Yeah.
1: To make a claim in the pharmaceutical space, we typically have our randomized controlled trials. And what that means is that we have arms or segments within a trial that are being compared and controlled means usually there's like a placebo as a constant. So something that provides a baseline that you can compare to to prove that your product or your agent makes a significant difference. That's worth people's time and money. To say that you have a randomized controlled trial, you need a protocol that is statistically and bias-wise, you know, structured to give you the result that clearly proves your product is effective. To do that, though, in the consumer space, it's not as regulated. You don't need to be as controlled if you even need a trial, you could probably just survey some people. Like you don't need to have the same rigorous regulations on your trial protocol or whatever you're even basing your claims on, in generally the consumer space, the non-pharmaceutical space. So when we hear things like clinically or scientifically proven, and they have that disclaimer that this has not been validated by the FDA, that automatically means that the data that you're basing this on has not been peer reviewed It's not been validated. It's kind of just someone saying something. And in order to say something in the pharmaceutical space that's like clinically proven, we have to go through Mm -hmm. so much review. The trial protocol alone, the way that it's structured, has to go through legal review and regulatory review and medical review before it even sees the light of day with a patient. And then even beyond that, we have to go through the FDA and they regulate all of our claims to make sure what we're saying is in fact accurate and transparent because perhaps when consumer products say sugar free or low fat those things may be accurate mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily being transparent in what the effect is. So, if you're saying fat free, maybe it's because you upped the sodium to balance that out. Or if you're saying made with real fruit, you're not mentioning the high fructose corn syrup that it's also made with. You know, maybe you're just focusing on one of those beneficial aspects. But in the pharmaceutical space, we're more highly regulated where we have to be completely transparent about all those aspects.
2: And fair balance. I mean, in the agency life, think about how many hours we spend on calls with. MLR or CMLR Mm -hmm. and all these regulatory legal medical team members. And that's just to get certain phrases and language approved. Then you have to go through all the other steps in the FDA. So yeah, the amount of time that is spent making sure that the messages and the language that's being put out there to consumers is highly regulated. And I just never been on the consumer side of the agency world, but I'd be curious to see what their process is like. Mm.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for diving into that. So, Dina, I guess we could assume that some of these brands who are saying, you know, Activia has claimed to be clinically and scientifically proven to regulate digestion. We're calling bluff on that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think they did a randomized controlled clinical trial on that. They've had some pretty big class action lawsuits actually around those claims. The other one I think that's interesting to bring up is Juul, the e-cigarette. They've had a lot of trouble recently based on some of their former claims calling the e-cigarette a healthier alternative to traditional cigarettes, claiming it was safer, but it actually contains more nicotine than a cigarette. And it has been intentionally marketed towards children and teenagers so just two big examples of false advertising faux pas that have actually resulted in class action lawsuits based on the language and the messages they chose to use, which, again, to your point, Dina, we don't have that flexibility or that ability to do that in big pharma. Mm hmm. I think Juul is also another
1: one of those interesting examples of a non-healthcare related item or product trying to pivot into that self-care benefit, mm-hmm. you know, trying to take smoking, which we understand as not a good thing for people, but trying to pivot it into the healthier option and kind of dovetailing into that self-care era. And I do understand, at least as a consumer, the potential for vaping to be healthier. But the thing is, mm-hmm. we're obviously uh, avoiding the combustion aspects of burning in different materials. But the thing with the jewels and the vapes is that it does contain more nicotine. But if you knew how much, like let's say a single cigarette much was worth you might be able to pace yourself and i think that that aspect was interesting because there was no consideration for making that parallel you know a vape is more to a pack of cigarettes than it is a single cigarette i thought that that was interesting because yeah it did have the potential to potentially be healthier but there was no methodology put in place to structure it that way you know
0: interesting yeah so how they positioned the product and instructed people to use it may have further exacerbated these false claims and perceptions.
1: Mm -hmm. And and it, it could have been even insidious in that if you understand that nicotine is addictive and you're not really concerned with people pacing themselves and actually living that healthy lifestyle that you're advertising, then yeah, to me, there is like that false advertising aspect in that, yeah, you're advertising it as healthier, but you knew it wouldn't be used as Healthier option, you know.
2: Do we know if those brands of Jewel or Activia have they rebranded themselves? How are they coming back from this? It's
0: a great question. Great question. I think that's probably a good cue to talk about trust. I think both of those companies have not really had the ability to recover. I think Jewel was completely blacklisted by the FDA. They can no longer really sell their products at all based on their marketing tactics. But Activia only changed a couple words, right? They said instead of being clinically and scientifically proven, they instead just said that studies have shown some improvement in digestion.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So they really didn't admit to any wrongdoing. They continued to own that they are the brand that helps customers regulate their digestive system. They never admitted or walked back from those claims, they just tweaked a couple words to kind of avoid that bigger Mm -hmm. lawsuit. But I want to ask both of you, how do you identify a brand that's trustworthy? And, you know, where do you get that information? Mm -hmm. For me, back to our earlier conversation
2: about the health and wellness industry, I think brands who are proactively taking a stance and making sure that their products are up to a certain standard. So for instance, there's something called Forever Chemicals. They're technically per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, Mm -hmm. and they're in a lot of rain jackets, hiking pants, yoga pants, sports bras. It's been found in apparel from everything from Lululemon to Patagonia and Athleta, REI, Although Patagonia, there hasn't been any lawsuits against them, they've seen how some of their competitors are falling short. So, for Mm -hmm. instance, REI made some claims about how their clothing or their apparel is sustainable, which is completely outlandish. So even though Patagonia's messaging wasn't deceptive in any way, they're making strides to improve the quality of their inventory, changing their supply chain techniques to get rid of these forever chemicals, even though I think science has known about it for a while because it's come to public attention. And Patagonia is one of my favorite brands personally, like they give back to the environment. I think it's a lifetime warranty on their apparel, like hiking boots or jackets. So yeah. I'm very pleased with the stance that they are taking. hmm.
1: That's a cool one. I look to brands that walk the walk. It's one thing to, you know, pledge to support LGBTQ youth or sustainable practices, or whatever donations and performative kind of capitalism might be happening. But I like to see brands that, even if they did mess up, taking action to do better. Because I think it's unreasonable to assume that any person or any company is never going to make a mistake. I think those mistakes are some of the biggest learning opportunities. Just like even personally speaking from my professional career, those mistakes that I've made, they stick with you. You learn from them. You do better. Mm -hmm. I like to see action taking place. Like off the top of my head, I don't know names of brands, maybe ASOS or Aerie or Dove, but some brands that have committed to not retouching photos especially in clothing or makeup when they have that disclaimer. Uh, Disclaimers are small yet mighty, and I'll say it as a copywriter. (laughs) But when you see those disclaimers that say, you know, Michelle has been unretouched or you see the stretch marks or you see the wrinkles, like I love that authenticity. I like the good, the bad, the ugly. Like show me the truth, even if it's not pretty, because that to me is trustworthy.
0: Awesome. So I hear proactivity is really important. Taking a pulse on the market, what your consumers want to see in your brand and being proactive and powerful in that message. And then also being authentic, right? And Mm -hmm. making sure that the actions your brand takes really speaks to your overall vision and what your consumers really want to connect with. Mm -hmm. That's great. Anything about your social circle or influencers, you know, I think especially in the health and wellness industry, social media influencers have been so big. What is your take on that?
2: I still, for me, it's word of mouth for a brand to be one of my, you know, go-tos. There's a clean beauty product that I use for my skincare. And I know the woman personally, she's from my hometown. She used to be a high powered accountant for HBO. She lived a very healthy life. And then she started losing sensation in her hands. She went to all these top neurologists, found out that she had a brain tumor. And then she had to say goodbyes to her children. You know, she was confused because she lived such a healthy life, but they said it was something topical. So she had surgery, it was completely removed. And she almost came out of this with renewed identity and committed her life to developing an ethical skincare brand that has the highest standards i don't even think they have sunscreen because they haven't found an option that isn't able to use such toxic chemicals so i know her personally and i think that's why Mm -hmm. i have a high affinity for this brand but as far as influencers go i am skeptical but There are a few in my feed who I feel like I could be friends with and Mm -hmm. you follow them. And, you know, if there's someone who's really compelling and they're more personable in their approach, I would possibly consider purchasing one of their brands that they advocate for. I mean, in pharma, for instance, there's this one patient advocate I follow And she's been on a competitive clinical trial. I don't think she's getting paid at all by the competitive company, but she has reels talking about her experience, constant updates, and has such a following within this rare disease community. And it's organic. So that's almost the best type of marketing that you can get.
0: Mm-hmm. long-winded story <laughs> no, lots think, on yeah no I think you're right those personal anecdotes and connections are so important in fusing trust and all of that in this industry so thanks for sharing mm-hmm. yeah
1: I spend I was gonna say a lot of time but it's actually too much time on social media <laughs> uh, just, just scrolling my feed spending more time on TikTok but I'm still more on Instagram but for me, when it comes to influencers, I trust people that look like me. And what I mean by that is I follow a lot of fitness people and I, I consider myself a plus size girl and I'm trying to work on the proud of it, but yeah, I'm there. But mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate fitness influencers that are plus sized women or women that have lost weight after having been plus size because that to me is relatable and trustworthy. And she understands me as opposed to, you know, maybe a fitness model. Who ran track in high school and has always been kind of fit, you know, I maybe Mm -hmm. she has some great workouts, but I have a harder time being inspired by her than maybe someone who's Latina and uh, has been struggling with her weight all of her life, maybe a little athletic, you know, someone that looks and reminds me of me. Similarly, when it comes to makeup, you know, people that have that combination skin like I do, skin types are aspects that I can relate to because if they say something maybe works for their dry skin or, oh, actually, like this clothing company doesn't fit, you know, our thick thighs like for us girls, then I trust them because if they're more similar to me, then I think that their opinion is going to more likely be aligned to what I would think as well. Awesome.
0: So relatability is Mm -hmm. huge too, right? On forging those connections, absolutely. So I want to wrap us up on a positive note here To continue to talk about how us as pharmaceutical marketers and healthcare communicators can better forge trust in this industry and start to close the gap where pharma really lacks in terms of trust with our consumers. I think we all can agree that pharma is at an interesting precipice here, almost at an inflection point. I think the pandemic really helped demonstrate the power of pharma and Mm. research and development. We've seen the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year. That's already started to bring some really high prices down on life-saving medications. We see insulin is now being capped at $35, and manufacturers have done that proactively, you know, something we've talked about being proactive. And the biggest drug ever in Humira also loses exclusivity this year, and we'll see tons of biosimilars coming out, hoping to lower prices for patients who need these really life-changing biologics. So it's an inflection point in pharma. How can we continue to ride that momentum? A couple things we spoke about, I heard Natalie and Dina, you say some things to build trust with customers is number one, being authentic, sharing personal stories, being emotional where you can and forging those connections, being organic and proactive where possible, and then, of course, being relatable, being representative of the patients or the people that we're trying to connect with. Is there anything else that we think is really important in this industry to continue to build trust with our customers?
1: First and foremost, understanding the audience, right? Because Mm -hmm. especially in our pharmaceutical advertising, one of our first questions, especially as copywriters, is who's the audience? Is this HCP or patient or is it both? Because the way that you'll talk to a physician, at least the way that we write it, is going to be different than talking to a patient. Maybe a patient will be much more receptive to those human stories and that authenticity, whereas a physician, they might just want the facts. And you can say it in a nice, fluffy, emotional way, but that might not resonate with a physician audience as much as just a straight data claim will. So I think that authenticity element is definitely true, but perhaps that takes different forms based on your audience. So you definitely need to know what their priorities are.
2: I would also add... add I am the biggest proponent of co-creation with the mm. community, with patients mm-hmm. from the start, from when you're developing and designing clinical trials. What are the endpoints that matter? You know, mm-hmm. not the endpoints that will expedite or accelerate your approval time. What really matters to this community? And we do it a lot on the advertising side is the inclusion of patients in the community in the our campaigns, in testing of messages, in photo shoots, but I really think it has to start with pharma and it has to start from the beginning. Inviting people to speak at your companies, doing ride-alongs, going to more grassroots walks. I think Mm -hmm. we need to build more of a connection between the people that are actually suffering with these ailments and the people who are working on medication and life-saving drugs. Mm
0: -hmm. Great point. That's all about building that more authentic voice with the people who are the end users, right? That's super important. Great point. Well, I want to thank you both. This has been an incredible conversation. And I, for one, feel very optimistic about what we can do in the industry to improve trust and also some tips and tricks on how to scout out when we're being April fooled with some of the messages (laughs) that we see in this world. So thank you both for your time. And thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. You can subscribe to Truth Well Spoken on your podcast network of choice and let us know what you'd like to hear on a future episode by emailing podcast at mccannhealth.com. Truth Well Spoken is produced by Dina Ragab, Dina Rao, Jake Kronkowski, Melissa Kaczynski. Until next time, I'm Victoria Michaels, and this has been Truth Well Spoken.